0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. My guest this week is Joe Berry. We have been waiting to get her on the podcast, and I'm so glad that we finally did. Joe's father was a Conservative MP, Anthony Berry, who was killed in the Brighton bomb, an IRA terrorist incident in 1984. We go into the traumas uh, that that left in its wake. We talk about her eventual meeting with the bomber, Patrick McGee, after he was released from prison. And we talk about their tentative friendship, their collaboration, their talks all around the country, uh, building bridges for peace. We talk about self-healing. We talk about rage. We talk about empathy we talk about traveling the world we talk about the hippie cultures we talk about a whole host of things we talk about generational ripples of of grief we talk about many many things I'm going to throw some trigger warnings out on this I'm not sure of the specific trigger warnings but we deal with loss grief trauma therapy terrorism and all these things related to that so if you are sensitive to that then uh, you have been warned. Uh, I'm not really sure how else to explain this podcast other than time stopped for both of us. I was lost for words on a few occasions and I just felt that everyone who was party to this conversation in the room was really engaged and dialed in with it. It was a really, really special period of time. i um, really glad that we had this conversation and I'm going to stop rambling now and I'm just going to let you guys have it. This is Joe Berry on The Giant Pod. Joe Berry, hi.
1: Hello, Maya Andy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you for coming on my podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's been a long time since you first... Spoke to me in the co-op.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, how long ago was that? It was. Mm,
1: it was before the the last lockdown. Before the last. Lo- before the second lockdown.
0: Yeah. And then we wanted to do this. In, <laughs> we we waited till today because we wanted to do this in person, because it it's obviously quite an emotive story and quite a deep one, and I didn't feel that I didn't feel like talking to you via Zoom. Mm. Would have lent itself to a very sort of nuanced or particularly human quality. I don't think to it mm. because the, the nature of Zoom is very handing off to each other, and the, the the you seem to lose you lose a lot of conversational information. I think with Zoom because you've cut out the you've cut out the physical realm. So mm. there's a lot of Body language and our, you know, eye movements and blinks and and everything isn't there. We we tend mm-hmm. to we tend to converse a lot more with our bodies than we do with actually what we're saying, mm-hmm. and so via Zoom, it can really muffle that yeah. perception. And I try to you know I try to be quite perceptive and read my guests and try and move things and stuff. And in Zoom, it's it can be difficult. Especially with poor internet connection, and you just mm. ne- you just never know who's got what on their end. So it's great that we that we had the patience yeah. and, and waited uh, and waited for this one. But um, yeah, I mean, I first read your story. I want to say, I want to say, at least four or five years ago in the Froome Times, it felt like a very long time ago. I was eating my breakfast. Downstairs, and I was just scanning the paper, and it was something I very rarely do. Hmm. Definitely, at that time, was something I rarely did, and, and I don't know why. I don't know why I started reading your article because I'm very much a scanner. Hmm. Um, and I, but I started, and I was like, "This is this is a wild story. This story <laughs> of, of of finding this 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 chap that's responsible for the, the death of your father and, and, and befriending him." And then working together, I just thought this was insane um, and so I guess the seed of of tonight was kind of sown then because I didn't I think at the time I was doing radio like like a rock show mm. but a part of me was like I want to do this interview but I didn't have like a I didn't have a platform or a medium to do it in so it all it, it kind of just got filed in my head mm. as some kind of interesting an interesting story, an interesting take on how you can approach grief and uh, and, and things. And um, yeah, so I'm glad we get to do it today. And
1: I think you recognised me about five years ago. Yeah. And which I always remember. It doesn't often happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so we had a chat then. Yeah. And then it was a few years after that that we started talking again. So yeah, I'd just come to you I had been in Froom that long, but me and Patrick McGee had given a talk in Froome. Oh. And that's why it was in the paper.
0: So when I or read Or we were about to I think
1: we were about to give a talk.
0: Uh, that's oh that's kind of mm. that's very interesting then because it's not like I've seen you around town at that mm. point and I've been able to put your face to the mm. article. It's when you moved here I put the article to your face. Mm. That's that doesn't usually happen, I don't think.
1: Well, I get no, I've probably been here about seven years. Right. Um, but so, yeah, but that would have been, we were in the paper to get people to come to the event. Right. And um, yeah, lots of people came, but there were some people who were very upset it was even happening in Froom. Really? Yeah. Well, because like, of, uh, what, the military, so some of the military really didn't like it.
0: So, what, ex military guys or official military guys or?
1: We we had a message from a military. I can't remember whether he's still serving. I imagine actually he must have been an ex-soldier right. who'd been around in Northern Ireland,
0: yeah. and he
1: wasn't happy that Patrick McGee was coming to Froome.
0: Interesting. Mm. So he's he's still a he's still a massively controversial figure.
1: Definitely. Oh, definitely.
0: Right. Okay. Even after all of his yeah. his efforts to.
1: Oh yes, there are some places that. Um, it wouldn't be safe for him to go to in in Northern Ireland. But then also there are places in England where he could be recognised. Right. And, I mean, we're sort of talking about what's happening now, but we have given talks where there are people in the audience, Yeah. usually from the military, but not always, who are like really angry he's there and have just come to shout.
0: Right. How do you handle that? How do you... Because do you have a form and a structure to these talks, or do you just go out there and, and ad lib it and let it and let it flow how it may that night?
1: Oh, it's it's always ad lib.
0: Right. So you so you've got no you're not singing off of some hymn sheet that suddenly gets a little jarred and taken off of no right no. Okay. So you've almost you've almost factored in the heckling and the and the abuse, I guess.
1: Yeah, we have occasionally had security, but not very often. Okay. Um, so it's um, I mean, it's difficult because anyone can ask any questions or respond right. Uh, but it's bedives in a respectful way.
0: Right. And how does Patrick deal with with the the more abusive or um, negative uh,
1: comments rhetoric yeah. that he
0: he receives?
1: It depends. Sometimes he can himself feel defensive, which is understandable. And sometimes he's not at all defensive and he tries to have a conversation or he, you know, finds a way to speak about it, um, put in context, certainly depends. Right. I've also had people um, heckle me.
0: Because, and that's, (laughs) okay, that's very interesting because I, I imagine that you have a lot of people that feel that they know how you should feel better than you.
1: Oh, I've always had that.
0: Yeah. Right. So they feel that. Tell me a bit about that. What in what kind of forms do you see that? When did that start?
1: Um, I got my first death threat um, in eighty five.
0: That's a really strange sentence.
1: No, eighty six.
0: My first death threat.
1: <laughs> eighty six.
0: <laughs> right. And I
1: worked in a very public place in London, so anyone could have found me. Right. And there was a photograph of me in the Evening Standard that was around then. And I'm holding a copy of um, Calhoun Gibran's The Prophet, I don't know if you know
0: that book. What's the significance of this book? So this
1: book is a beautifully spiritual book of like wisdom and non-violence right? and forgiveness. And I'm holding this book because I'm working in a bookshop yeah. in, a, in a church in London. And it's the headline is... Is um, something about daughter a victim forgives terrorist? It was a typical kind of Daily Mail headline.
0: So it was. It was. I had no. It had absolutely no. <laughs> yeah, they're grabbing attention, and they don't care how they get it. Yeah, it's not about.
1: The it's story. not really
0: about. Yeah, pushing all the your, No. Yeah,
1: wasn't at all. Um, anyway, after that, I got a, a very nice letter saying, "We do not forgive." Um, you are betraying your father to say what you've said. And um, there's only, I can't remember the exact words, because the person who was only the letters for me, he was like, well, maybe you shouldn't see this. And I said, I'll see anything. Yeah. I'm quite interested. And I've still got it somewhere, probably in the loft. But it was, you know, you deserve to be dead and we'll make sure that you are. We are people who don't forgive. And they had their own reasons for not forgiving. So I threatened
0: them. Oh, I reckon. How? Do, oh, oh, you. I oh, sorry. I thought. you no, they were must felt very threatened. Your response was to threaten them. Oh no
1: no 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 so you, no. So no.
0: by I virtue didn't think, of
1: no, I didn't think he'd ever come and find me.
0: Right, or they,
1: or they, or whoever they were. They were never going to come and find me. It was signed by a man. They were never going to come and get me.
0: Right. I, th- I mean, a lot of death threats. They don't seem to come to. <laughs> <a> <laughs> well, lot, thank goodness. <laughs> I don't think I've had a death threat yet. You haven't lived yet. I've lived. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Do you you wait? You wait till the end of the year. <laughs> you haven't lived. I like that because there's something in that. Actually, there's something oh. that says that you haven't you haven't lived so hard or lived by something to such a degree or mm. a principle by such a degree that you've made a real enemy yet.
1: Well, it was, a, it was a joke. I didn't mean it quite like that,
0: but, no, but I'm a, glad. That's, that's but That's interesting.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. And there's someone who um, works in Northern Ireland who's an amazing man, and he's had death threats from both sides. Right. Um, and, and he thinks that means he's doing really well because <laughs> it's equal. Right. You know, I thought that was interesting.
0: That is interesting. And I think that the... To a lesser extent, you know, you have things like trolling, don't you, online and stuff mm. these days, which is kind of, I guess, the death threat is the is 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 a, <laughs> a more serious troll, but it's essentially <laughs> the um the the grandfather of trolling, isn't it, mm. in, in some ways? Um, and a lot of people that do things like what we do, create things and, and, and are doing things and putting things out into the world it's only when you start getting the comments that are trolling and you start getting a little bit of hate online that is a lot of people say that's the moment when actually you go oh we're doing something right because what you're doing is good enough to elicit an, an emotion of some kind from someone mm-hmm. to the point where it goes from from here to here to here to out here again and that's that actually means that really you're doing you doing something right mm. because you're moving someone. It might not be in the way that you want, mm. but it means that if they've had the they've had the um, impetus to uh, or the drive to 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 do that to you, then there's probably a hundred more that really enjoyed that and really moved yes. in a great way and just took it's and true. just ate it up and and, mm. and then didn't engage and moved on with. Mm what They were doing this is very interesting. You're <laughs> my first death threat. Have you why you should probably frame it?
1: I've got to go in the loft and find it, okay. and I might need help to get into my loft. So I'll help you. Okay,
0: <laughs> I could, I'm so tall, I could probably open your loft hatch and just look around in there. I'd well, love to see it.
1: I mean, tell me how busy you are. <laughs> I don't know when I'm gonna book you. I've
0: got time to find a death threat, Joe. Okay, um. <laughs> So maybe we should rewind a little bit. I think that's a really good sort of like prelude to this mm. whole story. We, like, we need
1: to come back to the riot.
0: Okay. Okay. Later. Do you want to do the riot now? Or do you want to? Did you start a riot?
1: No, but there was a riot where I was speaking, and I mean a serious riot.
0: And it, it was and and was a symptom it was an of east your
1: Belfast.
0: <laughs> oh. Okay. Let's go into the riot now. <laughs> Metallica, Guns N' Roses—they've been the cause of riots. <laughs> I've never been in the. Actually, I don't think I've ever been in the presence of anyone knowingly mm. that's caused a riot. <laughs> so,
1: well, <laughs> I mean, I have to say, it wasn't my intention. No, I that's what they all say. Particularly enjoy it. <laughs> I actually just come back from Lebanon and, and I've been in Beirut, and about halfway through the store, I, I, I and I could see police with the the shields, the riot shields running up and down and outside I could see smoke and hear the noise and in the room there were about 300 people listening so intently to me and Patrick McGee and the quality of listening was such I've never heard before. It was almost like the riot outside sort of heightened the senses of what was happening inside and at one point I said just come back from Beirut, much more peaceful than here. <laughs> Purely because I had to name it, because we couldn't, like, not, you know, it was a, such a weird situation. And then someone asked a question, and I was like, Joe, well, you say you're about listening and making sure people aren't demonized, you know, why don't you go out and listen to them? And I'm like, well, yeah. I'd come back tomorrow and listen to them, but right now. You know, they're not in a space to be listened to. Yeah. Like they, they're in a, it's freezing outside. It was January. They've been there all day. They were in a frenzy. Yeah. And when people left, they, t- they tried to attack people and said, you deserve to be dead if you were in there. That was the extent of the anger. Right. And after it ended, people were told, don't clap. So they didn't know outside it finished. And I had to Maybe one minute to hug the people I knew, and I knew so many people i and then we were whisked away yeah. in an armed police car, in an armed police van to the hotels, well, Patrick McGee to his house and me to the hotel, and I remember saying to Patrick McGee, what was the la- when was the last time you were in an armed police van, and all the police laughed because they knew that he would have obviously <laughs> been in one before, but then I'm back in my hotel, yeah like 10 minutes after it's ended. And I just sat there, and then the messages started coming. Are you okay, Joe?" I'm seeing it on the news. I was on Twitter. You know, what's happened? Um, And I was on my own, in shock. And all the people who I wanted to speak to were there, and I was worried about them. But everyone did get back okay, and I did actually go back to Belfast about four days later with my middle daughter, who would have been... About 17 then, and she was doing a, a project on um, the Brighton bomb. And oh, no, no, that one was on, was on Belfast murals because right. she was a photographer. And so she was doing it at university. And we went to the same place, this is called the Skiernos Centre in East Belfast. And um, we went there, we actually met someone there who had been in the IRA, not Patrick McGee, because she doesn't want to meet him, which is fine, but someone else. I mean, we met there. So your,
0: do- your daughter doesn't want to meet Patrick? No. Oh. No, no, no. Is this is this because of what he's done?
1: She missed, She feels bad she hasn't got a grandfather.
0: Interesting. So she doesn't right.
1: want to meet him, but she wanted to meet other people. So she met a couple of other, like, really men I know who are really lovely. So she met them. Right. But it was so strange being back in the same place and it was all peaceful. And, and the people who'd been outside rioting, some of them were older women, like my sort of age. Yeah. And they would have gone to Bible class the next day. <laughs> Like, I wouldn't have gone to Bible
0: class, but, no, but they would have. So, it was back to normal. Well, that's the beauty of church, isn't it? And they didn't
1: recognise me.
0: And you go and you wash away all the sins mm. of the last six days. and yeah. do it all over again.
1: And I knew they wouldn't recognise me. Right. So, I could go back there. But it was a very odd experience. Fascinating. I have to say.
0: I'm very interested in that that um, dynamic with your daughter now has is patrick does is patrick aware of this oh, yeah. animosity as he tried to as he tried to reach out and, and and build a bridge um to your daughter?
1: well i'm not sure his animosity um but no he hasn't because that wouldn't be appropriate right. you know she would have to come to him i mean when she was um six she was involved. I was making a documentary at that time. So I met Patrick McGee in 2000. So that was a very long time ago. Right. And then soon after we met, someone arrived with a camera to just make a video for a very small project in Belfast, never yeah. to go public. And when the person arrived with a camera, he was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. The world needs to see this. So he started filming it with our permission. Right. And during that year of filming, uh, I did share with my daughters what I was doing. Not so much the youngest one, because she wouldn't, she'd been four, but Iona was always curious and wanting to know everything. And also she would hear everything. So she got to know. And one day she arrived as I was going to Dublin... Um, with her her little pink Disney suitcase packed and said, wait, wait, I'm coming with you. I'm ready to go. I packed. <laughs> and I looked at her and said, oh, okay. So you're coming? Yeah, I, I want to come. I've got a message for that man. I went, okay, you got a message. Well, I'm wondering if um, you can tell me the message and I can share it with him because it's going to be quite difficult for you to come and you've got friends coming inside thinking... There's no way you're coming. <laughs> right, yeah. But like saying no would, would not be, you know, the respectful thing to do at that point. Right. So she said she thought about it. Said, "Okay, I'll tell you. Go and tell him that that was a very bad thing he did to kill my granddad Tony." So I said, "Okay," and I repeated the words. I said, "Right, I'm going to take those words and I'm going to share that with him." And at that point, she put down her pink suitcase and went off to play. And so I thought, right, off we go. And I actually shared the message um, on camera. Right. And it's one of those moments, which there are many, where Patrick McGee was really moved, really touched, because he'd moved from when he first met me, not thinking at all about his victims. He's so demonised them, and he was cut off from any feelings about what he'd done. Right. And this is, this is him feeling again. And now it's not just me.
0: It's a generation. It's my daughters, right. yeah,
1: the ripple effect. Like, there's more. Yeah, he's robbed a, a little girl of her granddad.
0: And granddads are so cool as well. They're like the best thing. Um, yeah,
1: I know. Anyway, so she had several messages that year because that's who she is, um, and some of them were really moving messages. And so he always knew about her. Yeah, and and I think over the years she's just felt that she. She's not ready. She doesn't want to to meet him. And she just misses her granddad, who she never met. And I think she's now they're my my age. They're they're older than I was, two of them, when it happened. Right. And they're now fiercely protective that I had to go through that. Right. And they're mine actually quite young. Yeah. So 27 felt quite old at the time, but it's not really. And thank you for saying that. What? 28. (laughs) <laughs> okay well so you're same as my middle daughter. So yeah doc you can see the documentary it's you can buy it on Amazon. I'm not suggesting people have to buy it but they want to because it's it's quite a powerful doc in fact it's an amazing documentary won an award and it's um yeah.
0: So there's a couple of things from that is one that one from a very early age it's quite clear that your daughter's quite a spirited mm. young woman. Um have you fostered that? Have you, have you, because you, you, it sounds like inst- a lot of parents would have been like, don't be stupid, you're not coming with me, put that suitcase away. But it sounds like you said that wouldn't have been the respectful thing to do. So it no. sounds like you're very, the way that you approach communication with your mm. kids is a very adult way of doing it and respecting that they're their own little sentient thing with their own minds. Yeah. So how how have, how have you, and, um, developed that over the years what's your approach to that sort of thing because that's quite a profound thing really isn't it what she did what I she think said. it's
1: hugely profound um, but no one's ever talked about it in terms of my parenting so that's interesting so a lot of the skills that I feel I have uh, which is to do with communication emotional intelligence, like I was not born with it, I didn't grow up with it, none of it I didn't have it when my dad was killed, <laughs> um, but back in 92 I already had one daughter and maybe about to be pregnant yeah, and I I knew that I didn't want to parent the way I'd been parented, which is not at all disrespectful to my own parents, but they did, we didn't do emotions in my family you know, right. and and we weren't really allowed a voice and I wanted to do it differently and I happened to hear someone in a pub talking about a course they were just finishing on parenting and it was one of those moments when I just knew I had to do it right. and not only did I do it I then trained it in order to facilitate it and it changed my life it completely changed my life it was a 13 week course and there were elements in that of conflict transformation listening seeing the need behind the behavior, not labeling people. Right. And these days there's many, many different methods of similar kind of things from nonviolent communication and all sorts of parenting books like that. But at that time it wasn't really around and I knew I knew I really had to immerse myself in it. So it was, a lot of it was about acknowledging emotions and, um, yeah, being respectful. And of course challenging, but without... Blaming without shaming. Now, I was not the perfect mother at all. but I got it wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, um, they keep on reminding me now, which, which is fine. <laughs> um, but but there was something there that I that I did. The fact that even now, they're so my three daughters live together in tower hamlets in London, and they're amazingly resilient and able to look after themselves and each other. And they're like an amazing group through COVID. They've just been this team. Um, and there's something about that early parenting where I would acknowledge all emotions, you know, and, and listen to them in a way that certainly never happened to me.
0: It's, it's interesting. That is very interesting. And and to have, have come to that conclusion that she made, how old was she? Did you say? She was six, she? almost six. seven. So she's... It shows a deep understanding of of something that she's missing. Mm. It? it shows a it shows that she's been thinking about it independently of yeah. of um of you or mm. what she's seeing and she's thinking about it mm. in terms of what that means for her. I think that's very um that's very powerful. That's a very big cognitive um mm. thought exercise, I guess, to to understand the, the impact. It's almost 3D in a way, if that makes sense. Um, yeah,
1: and, and the fact she said it was a very bad thing he did, not that he was a very bad man.
0: Oh, yeah, I hadn't picked up on that.
1: Interesting enough, when Patrick tells the story, he says that she said he was a very bad man, but I know, I know that wasn't how it happened, I'm pretty sure. It was what he did, and so that's how he took it.
0: Right, mm. that's fascinating, mm. and it, it, it's interesting that you've spent a lot of your life um, talking about peace and forgiveness and mm. working together and building these things. Um, and I'm not saying you've you've failed, but it, I find it interesting that your daughters are mm. unwilling to to take that to take that path, even though they've seen the great emotional cost that. It's brought to you to arrive mm. in the place that you're at, and it was mm. your father, mm. not theirs. Mm. That is that's very that's very interesting. But again, I, I guess those those parental skills and those things that you mm. learn, you have to give them the space to have their yeah. own. That's their journey. Yeah, their own thing. It's them. their
1: journey. You know, they never met my dad, so they have their journey, and it's different. It's different to mine. I mean, they support me. Yeah. And we're extremely close, as you can probably tell. But they're they're absolutely right to for their own feelings. In fact, that's very, very important that they they choose um, how they feel. Yeah. And you know, also that I don't think they feel it's like their battle. They've got their own issues in their lives that they're all facing, you know, and they're, they're grappling with. So maybe it's just an area also they don't want to be involved in.
0: It's interesting. Um Maybe we should we should because we we started on the riots, didn't we? And we got back to that. <laughs> Let's rewind. Tell me about Just. tell me about your childhood because I know. So, so you your your father was a conservative MP. Yeah. Um, Tony Berry. Yes. And, or was it Anthony? Was it? Yeah, both. Okay. Um. And but and I, what I understand is that you were a bit of a hippie, <laughs> free spirited child at the time yeah tell me about your, your childhood being that i've
1: done a
0: bit of research how
1: did you find that <laughs>
0: did a little bit of research um but not enough that i know everything because i don't like to otherwise i just feel like i'm leading people to the answers mm. that i want i like to keep enough Enough mystery and curiosity, mm. so that I have a lot of fun while I do this. But I, I yeah, you said. I think you said you were doing some travelling or something around that time around yes. Europe. So tell me about your childhood, and, and is that kind of hippie, um, free spirit stuff a reaction to being the daughter of a um, a well known conservative politician? Um. So
1: being a, being a hippie. Do you Literally. like the show,
0: hippie, or do you? What well, it's it's because it has two different. I I, know. I I think hippies are cool. I like. I love. The, I got Grateful Dead ring on. I love hippies. I've heard. I've just,
1: I've been to see Grateful Dead in have New you? York. Yeah.
0: So just tell me about that real quick. How was that? It was amazing. What, what year was that?
1: I can't remember. In the seventies.
0: What? Which um, venue? Fillmore. I think so. Good mm. oh, God. Yeah, um, that would have been a good one.
1: So the first time I. <laughs> I saw a hippie Ooh, <laughs> um, where I lived in, in London. Now, I sort of got expelled from school when I was 15.
0: Sort of, or did? Did,
1: but... <laughs> okay, did.
0: <laughs> what did you do?
1: Well, this is it. I, not, I never, I never really knew. I was just a troublemaker. Okay. And very unhappy. Well, I came back to London and... So the hippies were still happening, Carnaby Street was happening, um, High Street, Kensington was very different. It was all very different. And there was a whole squat quite near me, a whole terrace that was just a squat. And I can't tell you how how immediate it was. As soon as I saw hippies, I was like, yeah, that's me. Oh. I was like,
0: yeah, I belong. So, so it was an immediate affinity. Yeah. Was it when you saw them or was it when they kind of brought you in to no, the fold No, I just saw bit? them. And and what did you see in that? Did oh. you see a tribe in that? that yeah, you, I saw
1: a tribe. Like a
0: new family? Yeah. Because you said you were very unhappy, you have been expelled from school. Mm. This sounds very much like rebellion. Of, but
1: their values, the values they had that right. I saw.
0: Were they in stark contrast to your families? Because I don't want to stereotype and say he was yeah. a conservative MP, so he must have been a very right-wing conservative. Mm. I don't want to go down that.
1: No, because he was route. very loving, very accepting. Yeah. And it's a very different kind of Tory to how they are now. Right.
0: That's why I've tried to to dodge that.
1: Um, But there were... I mean, I had an amazing childhood in many ways, very, very privileged. But there was always part of me that felt like I didn't quite belong. Right. And I was always trying to find who wasn't in the room, if that makes sense. So I did some pretty awful things. I went to... um, Downing Street for a cocktail party. I can't remember what year. Right, with your dad. Yeah, with my dad. Right. So my parents divorced when I was six. Okay. Um, and I probably was wearing a long dress which had a safety pin in it because it just because it had a hole or something. But I tried to look the part because I I wanted to for my dad. But I usually failed in some way. Anyway, when we we were all ushered into this this room, the first of all there was like kind of horrible little sandwiches and things to eat. And as we went to the room, I stayed behind. And I started talking to all the people who were waiting there. And I said, do you prefer working for Labour or Conservative? You know, what's it like working here now? And asking how they felt. And of course, I was told to hurry up and go into the other room by someone came to get me. So that was just the kind of person I was. I just wanted to ask questions. And I was curious. And very young, I remember asking my dad, "So where?" I asked everyone what they voted for, and then I and then I'd worked out there was more than one party. I must have been about nine. I was like, "So where where are the Labour voters?" <laughs> you know, and then I kind of thought, "Oh, okay." But having said that, my dad actually did. Um, he was part of a, a bridge. He loved playing bridge card game, and he would he had he would always be playing with Labour people, Conservative. In a way, he did do lots of. Cross community, I call it cross community. It's not quite cross party, cross party work. Yeah, like and a lot of Labour people, really close to him. So, he, so this was he politics
0: was a, of a different era then. Yeah, There's a little bit more. Um, yeah, do you think there was a bit more nobility in it? Much
1: more. And when we would go to Southgate, where he was MP, I didn't actually like going there very much because we, we'd have to wait. So I'd be by eight or nine because everywhere we walked from the car to wherever it was, a fatal or something, he'd open up and everyone would stop and ask him questions and he would be there for every, every person who had yeah. a problem. Right. He was that kind
0: of person. Was he a front bencher? Was no, he? no, he was
1: a back bencher. Back bencher. So yeah. he was not hugely ambitious and, and so he was very caring. He was really caring. He'd do anything. I got myself into terrible trouble once in Greece and, you know, he was just upset that I hadn't told him and, and hadn't asked him for help. He found out from the foreign office I was in trouble.
0: (laughs) What kind of trouble did you get into?
1: Um, It was uh, for... I was arrested for nudity. (laughs) Who could hear my secrets?
0: (laughs) What happened, Joe?
1: I was just living in a cave on a beach.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And he walked out one morning and went, ah, and there was a a new batch of tourists, were there?
1: No, 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 no tourists there. It was like a deserted beach. And the local... Great policeman right. came came down because I think he wanted promotion, so he handcuffed himself to me and I was then he owned me. it took us two days by little buses to get to the main town where I had a court case <laughs> and I was given three months in prison <laughs> but luckily the the For nudity yeah
0: right.
1: I was about 18. Okay. My daughters have not gotten into the sort of trouble I got into. Right. they don't even know half of it. I can't even tell you half of it, but
0: you, you can't tell me no,
1: because they don't know it.
0: Oh, I see. That would be unfair, wouldn't it? it would be
1: a bit unfair, and I'm not sure your listeners want to hear.
0: Yes, they do. Why? <laughs> they do. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did your dad say to say about this? Conservative MP, you know, his daughter's been arrested in Greece for nudity. It's quite ambiguous that as well. Like nudity you just nude all the time or was it a, a case of public nudity at one point?
1: Well, the policeman just came down and saw me at that moment. He didn't know how long I'd been oh, nude. Oh, okay, so.
0: right, I see. And he just was it like, was a deserted oh, here's, beach. A, here's an arrest. Yeah. Oh, right. You know,
1: like it wasn't upsetting anyone.
0: Right, you just mind your own business, yeah, doing your thing. Living in
1: a cave, Right. living on the beach. Okay. Like you do sometimes. Like you do, so maybe I was rebelling. What was important for for me? Because eventually, I went when I lived in India, was that nobody. It was so in India at the time. The sort of hippies were still around, and there were all sorts of people living there from around the world, all with their reasons not to live in their own country. Right. And no one cared who, what your father did, where you right. came from. Okay. And I think there was part of me because that, all of
0: theirs probably did very similar things, right?
1: Um. Probably not actually. No, no, because some of them were there for like ten years, um, making making things to sell, living off the land. Um. So it
0: wasn't all because I'd imagine it'd be quite a high proportion of people that are probably quite privileged mm. who were just trying to find their own way. Do you know what? There was a real mixture, right?
1: That's what I loved about it. You know, so there were Israelis there who were escaping from being in the army. Um, lots i mean lots of people were rebelling, but uh, but all all different it was classless right and everyone was accepted so you know one of my best friends came from a very difficult council estate right. and he was there for his own reasons so we were all there for different reasons but it was very much the global family
0: so you you're all kind of refugees in a, in a, <laughs> in a way of something trying to find a uh... Yeah, that's what it's the hippie dream, isn't it? You find your commune, or um, so. What brought you to India? Was it was it a Beatles connection? Summer of Love, kind of like because India was quite hip. Yeah, right.
1: When I was I was in Istanbul, and um, when you could still go overland to India, right, and you could you could actually go through Afghanistan, could go through Iran. And there were buses going backwards and forwards, hippie buses. And I was in Istanbul and I met some Danish people who had their bus and they invited me to go with them. And I didn't have any money, so I said, I'm just going to wait and I'll, and I'll see if my mum will send me some. Mm. And she she didn't. <laughs> I was like, I understand why. And it was my money, but she wouldn't send it. Right. So they, they went off to Goa without me. But I remember thinking, I've got to get to India. I just knew I had to get to India. And the first time I ever heard India was when my mum went there in a two seater plane when I was six. Um so that was the first time I'd ever heard of India. But it always had sort of magic to me. Yeah and so then I, I say heard, what does
0: it represent? Mm, what did India... Because America to a lot of people represents something, doesn't it? Yeah. What did what did in I imagine it had a similar effect to you, but it's almost the opposite, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. What did what did India like?
1: I suppose like, something deeply spiritual. You know, I remember arriving in India, and it just felt like I'd come home. Like the the smells, the senses, everything, the music. Um, I actually went went back for the first time just before lockdown. I in last year, I went to speak at a peace conference, and then had an extra ten days. On with, I met a, a friend who I'd actually met first in the Himalayas, and going back there was really interesting. Um,
0: what part of India were you in?
1: I was actually in the south, whilst before I was mainly in the north. Right. But it was really interesting remembering the person I had been. And the thing is, yes, I could spend so long there because of the privilege I came from and it gave me space, though so I lived there so cheaply. You know, we in those days you just lived on dal and rice made chapati. I mean, it was such a simple lie. Um... But I know if I hadn't had, especially that two years living in the Himalayas where I wrote poems where I thought about how I wanted my life to be, I dreamed. I also was recovering from a, a very abusive relationship which started very young. So I was there to find myself. And if I hadn't had that time to build strength inside myself, I never would have dealt with my father being killed
0: in the way I did. And so what did... What did India teach you was it independence in in a in a in a land where it's it's very foreign isn't it culturally to where you're from mm. and I guess it it was sort of put you to the test i guess a little mm. bit you have to rely on yourself completely in the moment I know yeah. you're saying that you were you were messaging your mother for more mm. funds et cetera mm. but in the in that moment when she mm. says to you, "No, I'm not sending you mm. any more money mm. um." you have to think and you have to rely on your wits, don't you? Mm. And your street smarts, mm. I guess. Um, powerful experience that mm. must have been.
1: Well, that was poor. I went to India and, and then I, I came back to England. I was about 18, went to university. And then I went, actually went to India after university. And um, that was a very different experience. Uh, I, yeah, it gave me a sense of freedom mm. to be myself. And a lot of people find India very, very challenging. But right. every day I was there, I just felt really alive.
0: Is it, why do they find it challenging? Is it because of
1: well, because nothing really works
0: like it does in the West, right? You know, like
1: if you're a control freak, you know, if you want things a certain way, yeah, you know, it's it's all a little
0: bit kind of different. A, a neurotic nightmare.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I I loved it.
0: Amazing. So let's. So when. I'm trying to get this round to to the day that okay. you find out. I'm trying to how do we apply some some context to to the Brighton bomb? Where are you in your life at this point? So you've done your travelling, you've been to India, yeah, you're doing the hippies.
1: I've th- come back home. I mean the hippie thing sort of did turn into more into a spiritual thing right. as well. I lived with the Tibetan people and thought a lot about what does peace mean?
0: Now what does what does peace mean? Well, it's
1: changed. <laughs> That's I was very idealistic in those days. Do you know what's really embarrassing somewhere in the loft which you are going to help me find is an essay yeah. that I wrote for a competition in 1980 or something and it was what what's the relevance Gandhi's views on non-violence on London today?
0: On London. Mm that's very specific isn't it yeah
1: it was for a timeout competition
0: right and of course i didn't
1: win It is really embarrassing i have reread it and i'm like oh no a load of
0: absolute nonsense but that's really important because that's a, that's a document which that's a, that's a that's a marker in time isn't it mm. and that then allows you when you read this now of all of your wisdom and mm. experience to look back and say, look how far I've come, or Mm. look what I've distilled from Mm. my journey Mm. on this particular subject. So it might be a little embarrassing Mm. to look at it now, Mm. but objectively, it's really important.
1: And it was amazing I wrote it. Right. It was amazing, like I'm not a writer, I'm certainly not academic. I actually sat down and had the discipline to write an essay, and it's quite long. Yeah. Shows how committed I was yeah. to really thinking about non-violence. Okay. You know, and if there had been in those days um, peace studies, I would have done it. Right. But we didn't have anything like that. We might have had war studies that did not interest me.
0: Right. But
1: there was nothing about
0: peace. Yeah, yeah interesting if you were to study peace studies and war studies at mm. the same time. Imagine that would be quite um, conflicting in, in many mm. ways. So, what was what was your takeaway when you read your old document on peace? What was it that you saw? What was the flaws in mm. your ideology of, of old that you would, if you could, if if I was young, yeah. younger Joe, mm. sat here, yeah, and <laughs> you were reading, and and younger Joe passes you this this piece on peace. And you sit there and you go. I've been through it with my red pen, younger Joe. Mm. I've read through it. This is this is what you're going to learn. This is what's what. what where are we with that?
1: Well, young Joe had not gone through the trauma of losing her dad mm. in a terrorist attack, and did not know about that kind of feeling and that kind of trauma. Did not know about the real world where people got killed and was living in a little bit of an idealistic world. Right. Not so in touch with emotions. So, Certainly not in touch with
0: rage. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So it was
1: not so grounded as so, I am now.
0: So it's an ideology that had not yet been put to the test. It had not yet oh, had to be applied.
1: Like the way you put it. But yeah, it's true.
0: So it's more of a living, could be more of a living document.
1: Mm. I mean, it's going to be in my book because um, it, it's part of my story. Right. And when people ask, well, how come you could so quickly bring something positive and want to understand those who killed your father, which was only two days afterwards. Mm. And in my book, I need to explain the person I had been before. Yeah, And that essay is part of
0: it. Do you think that trying, being so quick to, to find the reasoning behind it was a way of it was was it a way of dealing with grief or was it an an actual intellectual pursuit or was it just a a knee jerky um reaction to to like maybe if i understand this it won't hurt anymore or i won't have to deal with the pain
1: um it was more than that it was actually who am i now oh because the me no longer existed that I had been. This very idealistic, spiritual, slightly floaty person um uh, couldn't exist. It was like I was on a mountaintop meditating mm. and I come down the mountain into the Maya and I I didn't know how to be in that place. I'd start again. And so that was why. So it was actually about survival. It wasn't just about dealing with the pain. It was about how I could continue. And I saw it as a choice. Right. Whether I did that or not.
0: And do you think your, your path of spiritualism leading up to that day mm. had set you up and grounded you sufficiently to yeah. to not be completely broken by? Yeah. Definitely. Did you feel that there was a... Was there a conversation within yourself where you were like, okay, what have we learned? It's time to put this into practice.
1: Yeah, I had some thoughts in my head about it, which is almost like, okay, this is what all this is about. Right. Now I'm beginning and I'm not equipped. Right. Even though I made a commitment to bring something positive, I did not know the how. And I knew I didn't know the how. But that was okay because i absolutely trusted and i think trust was something that i learned in india don't quite know how but the sense that somehow i could trust in life even though life had just thrown me this appalling thing of my dad being killed but even with that i could trust
0: so you had a feeling that if you just keep going it mm. will find a way of, of working out in yeah. the end that's really powerful it's really powerful so i guess you felt a bit stateless for a bit yeah. um tell me about the rage because that's the opposite of everything that you'd been practicing and it's not just that i've stubbed my toe <gasps> rage is it or or it, it's it, i i don't know i've never experienced it but it, it must be it must be an anger from a, from a a place so deep and so genetic in a way that It must be quite scary to, to, as the host, to entertain it.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't wasn't there at the beginning. So, I mean, the first few weeks are there's a numbness, there's a shock. Um, I just remember people coming from all over the place to be with us and support us, and then we had to support those people that came. and then the funeral's over and it's everyone's going back to their normal lives, but I didn't have a life to go back to. Right. And, because actually I hadn't told you, I was about to go to Africa two days after my dad had been killed.
0: What were I'd, you going to do in Africa?
1: Well, I'd been in the um, the African village in Holland Park. It was a music summer. It was extraordinary. And I'd um, spent a lot of time and I'd been invited to go and visit some of the communities. So I was off on another adventure. So I owned my own flat and I'd let it, and that was going to be the way I was going to travel for a few months. Right. And so I said, even said goodbye to my dad. And about two weeks after, I was living with my sister and I thought, I need need my home back. So I went back to the flat and the South African couple who were there. And I said, look, I'm really sorry, but I know you got a lease but can can I have my home back because my father's been killed and they said no you can't you've signed it
0: so they had you the, they had you legally
1: yeah okay. and I and the I never wanted them to be the ones who were going to let it because I, I had someone else and somehow they persuaded me and I remember getting into my car and the, at that moment, it was the first time the pain just became I, over, overwhelming. And I cried and felt sh- such desperation that I didn't know what to do with it, that level of pain. And so I found the, w- the will, I don't know how, to squash it because I couldn't feel it. I couldn't do it. right. And there was no one at that time saying, oh, Joe, you know, you might need some help. There was no emotional support, nothing.
0: Had 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 therapy and counselling and mental health not developed enough as a, was it a mainstream no. option like it is now? Nothing. Wow.
1: And so I, I didn't know how to feel. I didn't know what to do with those feelings. So I, I squashed them. And I stopped crying. I went to see a, a friend who was going to lend me a, Actually, it would have been just before the funeral. So in the funeral I was about three weeks after. So it's quite early days. She was going to lend me a, a jacket or a dress or something, and she never knew what I'd just been through. Didn't tell her. I didn't tell anyone. And so there's a cost to bearing that amount of emotion and trauma. Obviously, I didn't know. Um, I won't talk about the cost because I don't need to. But anyway, back in stayed stayed buried a long time. And during those years, especially after um, I moved to North Wales, I never told anyone about my father. I couldn't talk about it, never talked about it. And in 99, around the time that Patrick McGee came out of prison, right. I was in a, a field where it was like a camp for families who all parented in a similar way. And in, in other words, the kids were out having adventures and we didn't know where they were, sort of somewhere in nature. And we were doing a circle with a talking stick. And for some reason, when I had the stick, I started talking about my dad. And at that moment, that box opened. That's when I felt the rage. And it was as if I was back on the the same day. It had been buried for such a long time. And luckily in the circle, there were... Trauma therapists and people very aware of what was happening, and knew that um I was going through something huge and on the way back, I think i I sort of kind of crashed the car not badly. And I knew I knew I then
0: of, I kind of crashed the car. Yeah, but I just
1: I just I hit sort of, uh, I hit a expound. wall at a petrol station. <laughs> right. It wasn't like a full-on crash. <laughs> so yeah, and, and that's when I knew I needed help. Right. But I remember the rage. The rage was part of the rage was this huge no. I just want to scream this no from the depths of my being. And then it was, how dare anyone think their need to be heard is so great they killed my dad.
0: I can't imagine it. I'm trying to, to think about it. Has is it, is it ever... Is it revenge ever come into it? No. Interesting. Because I think I would go straight to revenge. I'd go straight to cold revenge i think hmm. um in there okay and what what do you think it was that brought that out of you on that that particular day because you seem to have done such a i don't know if it's i don't know it sounds weird saying you did a great job of repressing it that, i did it's not you did do a great job even though it's ultimately a very unhealthy thing to do but you're very good at doing that I yeah guess, it's for that time. led to
1: terrible things happening but i think i was ready
0: right
1: I was ready to
0: do you feel I trust you' know, trusting
1: circle. there was safety in that circle my youngest daughter was three I was ready right I was ready and I do remember um I did a yoga holiday which is probably the first break from parenting maybe a few months before that and i had been in the the desert, I was on my own, and I'd been in the desert with this yoga group in the Sinai, and I remember um, saying to whoever's listening, you know, I'm ready to grow. I'm ready now, knowing that I needed to change. And there was a few months after that. So who knows? Anyway, the timing was right. Right. I, I, I needed for myself to address that because it was causing so many problems for me. Right. I really needed to, and it was the right time.
0: And it was interesting what you said earlier when you said that you. How, how dare anyone's need to be heard be so great that they killed my father? Is that what you said? Or yeah, I, right.
1: That's exactly it.
0: Tell me why your father was killed. So he was killed in in a very famous terrorist attack, the Brighton mm. bomb, mm. devastating um, thing, nineteen eighty four. Yeah, Conservative Party yeah. conference. So I guess this was a, 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 they were trying to just take out the entire establishment. Yeah.
1: yeah, my dad wasn't targeted as a whole lot. Right. I mean, at that time, the Conservative government were hated by a lot of people. There were people in England who cheered when it happened. Right. I met them. I I've met people who said they cheered. Um. So yeah, it was a whole government were targeted, and the hotel was the. Because they stayed in several hotels, but the Grand Hotel was like the hotel.
0: Right.
1: And my dad had only gone there because the people who'd been there, who were quite well-known ministers, had left suddenly. And so my dad was given the spare room. Like, he shouldn't have moved, he shouldn't have been there. But he was. <laughs> and my stepmother, who was injured. And so the conflict... I mean, I, I was aware of the conflict in Northern Ireland. I mean, as a child, as a teenager... You know, there were bomb scares. Quite often bombs, you know, bombs did go off in London. But I always thought I felt safe. I did live in peacetime, definitely. You know, right. I've I've met lots of people I know now who part of their childhood was having to look under the car in the morning to see if there's a bomb.
0: Right. That's just how they grew up. Or do they still do that now? No. I imagine it's quite a hard habit to, to break, <laughs> isn't it?
1: Well, I know. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's probably yeah, because people nor- I'd really they normalize stop
0: doing that. <laughs> they
1: normal It's interesting how people who lived in the conflict normalise things that, like, if you didn't live there, you you, you just wouldn't think about it, mm-hmm. and they just normalised it. And they, it's only when they meet people in England and go, "Oh, oh, so you don't do that? No, we don't <laughs> do that." Okay. Um, and I I grew up with the Vietnam, appalling, appalling scenarios in Vietnam and. And then Northern Ireland.
0: The thing with Vietnam is that they put the, they put a lot of the really graphic stuff on the TV, didn't they? Mm. And that and that was kind of one of the first wars where live TV or, 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 mm. or very, um, very efficient news mm. broadcasting was being beamed into people's homes, and everyone mm. had a TV set by that point. Mm. And that really swayed the US public opinion on the war because they were seeing their boys getting cut up and, and mowed down for, they couldn't figure out why. So it's very interesting. That's a very interesting war, I think, to have lived through and to mm-hmm. have watched unfold, because now things are very much censored, but I've spoken to people before who've told me that ah. the stuff coming out of Vietnam, it was, it was, you know, partly because it was so raw, some of it, that you know, the public were very mm. much aware every night of the horrors of war mm. they weren't shielded from it kind of like we are a bit now mm. so you never see anything too mm. too disgusting or too you never see the real price of war on the mm. evening news mm-hmm. um but with, with vietnam i think that was present mm. and that changed the opinion public opinion of support of the war i think
1: that's interesting well, I remember very graphic scenes as a child. I can't imagine we were allowed to watch it, but I do remember it.
0: That's probably normalized as well.
1: Yeah. And then Northern Ireland. Um, but I do remember um, when the hunger strikers started dying and, and I felt very strongly that they should be listened to. So I, I did not have conservative views
0: myself perhaps you got that sense of justice and fairness and and um, that sort of political side of you from your dad mm. from his example
1: yeah I don't know how he felt about the hunger strike because I know we did I was always anti-death penalty and I think that I kind of remember he did talk about it, someone he knew was killed by the IRA and he did talk about a death penalty so we did have different views about some things but the thing is, I was never one to argue. I, I never need to prove to anyone that I was right. right. I was just so kind of curious always. Um, but I do remember not agreeing with how the conservatives were responding. Right. But at the same time, I felt very detached from it.
0: Right. And so, after you've had the the talking circle yeah. moment, and you've you've crashed the car, and you've gone. All right, Joe. Let's um, let's do something about this now. We're ready. Mm. There's a point in time where you're sat in a room with Patrick McGee, mm. and you finally have a chance to say something to him. I'm very curious about, very curious about that. Curious about what happens after that. But I'm curious about how you get there. How do, how do you go about being where you were and knowing how traumatized and, mm. for, for lack of a better term, fucked up by what happened mm. to being in the room mm. with, with the guy. Because that would seem like the very last thing a lot of people would ever want or need mm. if they were trying to heal mm. and not get cold, hard <laughs> revenge. So how does, yeah. that, how does that journey begin? Do you do some therapy and you get good with yourself and then you feel like you're in a space to... to no therapy. To do that, or was that going to be the therapy? I need to...
1: There was... there was A lot happened. Suddenly a lot happened. So that was in June. And in October, I went to a forgiveness conference in Findhorn in Scotland, which is like a spiritual community. Mm. And I met most amazing people there, and some of them I'm still in touch with. Some people from Northern Ireland were there, people from uh, all over the world talking about forgiveness. And I started talking about what I'd been through and how I felt. And there was a group of us who, I mean, I just really call us the, the rebellious ones, mm-hmm. which I, I usually seem to find the ones that like to break the rules. Um, and we were an international group. So we used to, long after everyone was in bed, we'd we'd find ways to dance and um, find food and we'd sign up for different workshops and then go to different ones. I mean, really not not helpful to people who are organising conferences, not a good way to behave, but I felt in a way also quite liberated from the first time not being a mother and being there. And I was finding myself, it was a very exciting time. And one of these people who was part of my naughty group... um, He heard me speak in the main auditorium about what had happened to me. And he came up to me and he said, Joe, I had no idea that's you. I'm here looking for you. And I was like, what on earth do you mean? And he brought out a piece of paper. He said, I work for Glen Cree Reconciliation, and we're looking, which is in Ireland, and we're looking for people who have been affected by terrorism in England, Scotland, Wales, To come there to take part in a residential workshop and meet other victims and survivors. We'll pay for
0: everything. Was that scary to you?
1: It was a miracle.
0: Oh, okay. What? How? How so?
1: It was a miracle. What? Because it was
0: finally something. It was what I needed. Because you were like, "This is the specific thing I can relate to." And others. Yeah,
1: this is what I need. Yeah. This is my next step.
0: And you did your inner compass go? Yes. Oh, totally great.
1: (laughs) I was like. This is a miracle.
0: I love a good inner compass moment.
1: It was totally one of those moments. And he couldn't believe it either.
0: Right.
1: And so I went home um, and he said to me, okay, we need to find some more people. So there's a book called Lost Lives, which is a, it's everyone who's been killed in the conflict. And I spend the next few weeks going through it, reading, finding everyone in the UK and then finding their address and writing to them because it's before email. And I, I can't tell you the feeling I had about doing this. It was like, wow, this is so important. Um, I'm alive. I need this. It was amazing. So time. it wasn't
0: a grind. It wasn't no. frustrating. You no. were like, this is now my purpose. Yeah. This is this is what I have to do. Yeah. yeah. I love it.
1: So, you know, I'd have the kids doing things around me and I'd be there with my book and go, you know, I just need to do this. And then I went there in, in January and I arrived there and it's a beautiful place in the Wicklow Mountains and I walked in the room and there's 12 people and I know that I'm safe. No one's going to say to me, oh, Joe, surely you've let go by now, you know, or... Do, do people tell me say to, that to you? Have yeah. you had that? Oh, yeah. Or tell me to stop talking. These people are not going to be scared of my pain. Right. Because we all have it. I could feel it.
0: That's an interesting thing, is it? It's how people react when you're... I'm gonna say bullshit, but it's not bullshit. But but when your bullshit puts them out in some way, yeah, and it's like some sort of like weird selfish deflection, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, people are weird. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah, carry A lot on. of
1: people find it hard to deal with feelings. I think.
0: Right. Okay. That's what it is.
1: Um, and you know, I never, I never get all those people. Mm. They were amazing. They were. Parents whose sons had been killed because they'd been in the British Army. Mm. There was Colin Parry who lost his son in the Warrington bomb, which is quite a well known. He's created a peace centre. They were an amazing group. And I, that, all that emotion that was still there, I kept on letting more of it out in different ways. And we never slept, we stayed up all night. All of us, I think, were the same. It was too important to go to sleep. And we laughed a lot outside the, the workshops. Um, lots of laughter, a lot of drinking. I don't think I drank. No, I didn't drink. Um, and it was a releasing, and for me, massively transformational. Yeah. I kept on finding these, these parts of me that I'd left behind that needed to be listened to, addressed, acknowledged, and then let them go. Right. And I went many, many weekends.
0: Catharsis. Yeah, that's amazing. And these new, and when these then these old parts of you go, mm. there must they must leave behind them new new revealed parts, right? Yeah. So how do you? Are they, it was. It do was They tricky. need development.
1: Mm. Yeah, it was. It was a tricky time.
0: Right. So at the same time that you've got this release Mm. you've got the you've got another Mm. mission going on at the same time so you're having to juggle this yeah because your 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 sense of self is changing i guess Mm. isn't it
1: i'm beginning to trust myself again right and find myself and that self needed to contribute to the post-conflict healing and reconciliation and i did meet other people who were in the ira during that year but the one I really wanted to meet and build that bridge was Patrick McGee, and I'd written a poem for him in the summer, and I was ready. Well, ready—I'm not sure that's the right word—but I was like, I wanted to do it. Right. Yeah. So I actually met him in November of that year. So it was a very transformational year.
0: But before that, before we get to that, when was the f- when was the first time his name was mentioned in terms of like? it has to come through someone doesn't it oh i know him or Hmm. oh speak to this so and so when was the first time that you had a moment when you were like he's real and he's out he's out there and he's two three degrees of separation away from me
1: so when he came out of prison that's first time i saw him i didn't know he was coming out of prison i saw that on the headlines right and because at that time he was the most sort of demonized terrorist we had the whole world's press was there when he came out of prison Right. Which was a shock, and I felt anger then as well for, that he you've was seen released, him. and he was um, he was free, right? And my yeah. dad could never come back.
0: Right. But
1: then I was thinking, well, this is for peace, so you know, I'll let that go, and and I, then just
0: just let that go.
1: I have to, and then I, when I met these other guys who were in the IRA, so we had a weekend of, at, at the same place, and there were these four four men from the IRA who. They couldn't get rid of me and everywhere they went, they went for a walk, I'd go, can I join you? And it wasn't to talk about history or politics, I just felt I had to be with them because these are people who would have supported the the bombing of the hotel Mm. and I just wanted to understand them and see them and feel them and see them as human beings. And um, they all knew him, so that's quite a close connection.
0: Right. Right and and did they say we're not sure we want to introduce you or he doesn't want to know?
1: Oh, they said they'd make the introduction one of them.
0: Interesting. How long did it take you to until you were like, "Oh, this is what I want to do." Oh,
1: I asked them to do it.
0: Right. Was that did you have to build up to that or
1: just spontaneous?
0: Okay. All right. So you've put that feeler out there. Yeah. You put the feeler out. All the time I was doing it. Right. And that was your mission. Mm. And so, tell me about tell me about when you met him. Tell me about the the, the scenario, the setup, what you're feeling. Is there a moment where you were like, "Oh, I, what am I doing? Um, what was it like, or was it just a a focus, a clarity, like we've we've got here now, mm. and we're going to do it?"
1: Ah, uh, it was a, it was a lot. Right. I was on my own, traveling from North Wales to Dublin. Um, I'd only really known that morning it was going to happen, and I was going to a friend's house. Someone who I'd actually first met. I went to a lot to Northern Ireland in '85 and '86, and I met this woman then, and she that she was living in Dublin. So I was at her house. She was like kind of my negotiator <laughs> friend, and I think it it was that it could not have been a more kind of unprepared space. You know, it just was a kind of a normal house, except everyone there was sort of social activists and there was this happening, that happening, this meeting, phone going, people coming, people going, very chaotic. Mm. And at one point, my friend, as we're waiting, Anne Gallagher, she gave me a wooden spoon and said, oh, Joe, just finished the supper. And right. I'm like, I can't finish the supper. Right. I'm about to meet the man who killed my father. Yeah. I can't cook. <laughs> Right, yeah, you know, I was just like, no, and um, uh, i I felt terrified, you know terrified and, and i had I had some strange thoughts like, what's going to happen tomorrow, because you could say that this has been a mountain I've been climbing since eighty four it's now two thousand, and I'm meeting yeah. him well what what's going to happen afterwards right <laughs>
0: what's next mm. would there be <laughs> Okay, yeah, because this has been your motivating force. Mm. And maybe there's a part of you that thinks, what if I don't get what I think I'm going to get from this? Would well, they, I had a very low... Like ex-
1: well, I don't know What it was that, because I had a very low expectation. It was just right. like, "How? what am I going to do tomorrow? Which is a crazy thought. It is. Yeah.
0: That's kind of crazy yeah but but also really sane as well, mm. because it's it's like that's such a strange situation that that is the most normal thing that your your head your head has gone to a very normal preoccupation in a in a very abnormal mm. situation, so as, as as crazy as that sounds, it sounds quite sensible mm. as well, in a weird way,
1: yeah. I suppose like the mountain top, you could have called it meeting Patra McGee. Yeah. And then, I mean, we know when you get to mountaintops, unless you're climbing Everest or whatever, there's usually another one nearby, you know, like, right. which you hadn't seen. Yeah. But that's not what I was looking at. I was like, okay, well, this is it. My mission will be complete. Right. But it wasn't like that at all. So I did my own risk assessment. Uh-huh. And that I knew he wouldn't hurt me physically. I right. knew when he left prison, he was committed to the peace process. Right. I knew in prison that he got a PhD, he'd written a book, and from the people who knew him, I knew he was a very deep thinker. Right. And I also knew from my imagination that it was actually probably, in a way, harder for him because he knew nothing about me.
0: And you knew everything about him? Oh well, no,
1: everything. I knew a little bit.
0: Right. You knew more than he did? Yeah. And so how's the introduction made? Well, did he you...
1: he just walks into the kitchen and um, I get up and shake his hand and thank him for coming. And um, he thanked me for inviting him.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: And then we went into our own little room at the back of the house, like a little conservatory, and there was a, a sofa not very big and we just sat on either end of the sofa for three hours. Wow. No one there.
0: What was the first thing you said to him when he sat down? Do you remember?
1: Well, I didn't mention that... It took about three attempts to meet him. Three times I was told that he didn't want to meet me. Right. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a bit annoying, but I'm going to trust it, you know, if it's right. And if if it's not right, well, then... That's the other people I can meet. You know, the other bridges I can build. There's so many people who could be seen as my other. Right. Like the families of the hunger strikers who I was meeting and other men in the IRA. So it's fine. So when I did get the that he said yes, I was quite surprised. I'm like, oh, he's obviously changed his mind. Yeah. So I said to him, oh, how come, you know, I've heard you didn't want to meet me and, you know, what made you change your mind? And he said, oh, I've heard a few times that a daughter, one of my victims, wants to meet me. And I've always said yes. And I, I now call that our icebreaker.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> because that we started talking about how could that happen, and I was trying to remember all the different times and who they were. And, and like I think people were either protecting him or me. Right. And it's so early on in the peace process. I mean, ridiculously early on. I mean, like, we were mad to meet so early on. It's like, right. you know, it's just started. And there we are meeting to, you know, a high-profile um, incident. that, And we're we're meeting. But there we go. So that sort of broke the ice.
0: Right. And so in that three hours, what do you discuss?
1: Well, so he came, which I knew he would, because this guys in the I.O. are really, really clear to me. They're like, Joe, you've got the problems, he's got none. And I was like, okay. Because, you know, we, we were the oppressed. You know, your dad represented the power and that your the government used it against us. You know, we were an oppressed community.
0: Right.
1: Um, and I knew that he would come with that mindset and that attitude. So,
0: so were you expecting some pushback?
1: I expect him to come with a complete... Justification of the cause of right. the troubles,
0: and what—and what, that's what he did. And he did do that. Oh yeah. And uh, do you did you feel like that was a, a fairly sort of rehearsed, well trodden response? Like he'd, oh, he's he's done this before.
1: Well, I don't think he like oh, he'd never met anyone like me before. Right. So not rehearsed, but some of the expressions I would have recognized because that was just part of the language, the culture around the troubles. And what sort of Well I can't even remember now exactly what they were, but it there's, it's just the, the narrative that I right. had heard because I'd already met so many people. I, I even met someone high in Sinn Fein in 86 and you know I knew I actually knew quite a lot about the Troubles. Right. And so none of it was a surprise to me. So my focus was to almost to listen to him so that I could hear more. So I asked lots of questions yeah. and I listened and I acknowledged how hard it had been for his community. And I read the poem. And there's a line in the poem which is, um, I can't remember the lines up, but it's like, I acknowledge your suffering. Mm. Um so in the poem, I'm talking about what his community had been through,
0: right?
1: And that my my dad represented the power who'd not listened to them and been the cause of some of the suffering. Mm. And so, I think he begins to feel very, very heard by me. And there's one point where I looked at him and I could see that he really struggled before he joined the IRA. Like him, it wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't like, okay, that's it, I'm going to do it. He thought for a long time.
0: Right. As you said, he's a, a deep thinker.
1: Yeah. And he himself was into nonviolence. He was a follower of Martin Luther King when he was 15. And and in a similar way, a bit of a rebel and right. thinking about things. Um, so he'd made quite a big change. And... The reason why was he was responding to his community. He wanted to protect his community. Now, I personally don't think violence ever works to protect a community, but that's not, not the point. At that moment, I could see that he cared for his community. So as soon as I see he cares, then he's no longer this faceless enemy. Right. This man is being completely demonized by the media and the press. Uh, he's a human being yeah. with... Um, his humanity and I thought well that's that's what I need I can go now no one one will ever know I've done this right it's private I need never meet him again yeah because he's justifying killing my father and that's really hard right but i got what I need from this I'll go right and that's when he stopped talking and he looked at me and he said I've never met anyone like you before, so open and so much dignity. Can I hear your anger and your pain? I don't know who I am anymore. And that's when he took off his political hat and started becoming vulnerable. And the actual tone of his voice changed. And he started talking about my dad. And so I stayed. I stayed because... I was really scared because I knew this was a whole new journey starting. Right. Um,
0: and you didn't expect that? No. Right.
1: I had no idea where this was going to take me. So that was scary. But I also embraced it because it, this seemed like something very worthwhile.
0: Yeah. Mm. My my jaw dropped when you said that he took the thing off and suddenly became very human. Mm. It was it kind of stopped me in my tracks there that that's very I can't imagine what it was like to have been there and so where'd you go from there because you've you that you lay out your pain mm-hmm. and tell him everything, which is I guess like the ultimate catharsis isn't it?
1: well, I didn't do that oh not then, no. not then no. so
0: so he he gave the opportunity to do it, and you. You weren't ready to do it i wasn't ready
1: to do that you know it was it was no we talked a lot about my father and he was asking questions and i knew from a a conversation i'd had with someone else to be in the ira that he never would have thought of his victims like that's no surprise to me right you know when he planted that bomb he was not seeing anyone in the hotel (laughs) you know that was very far from his mind he's just thinking is the bomb going to
0: go off well that's part of this sort of stuff isn't it is that yeah. is you dehumanize the enemy, enemy yeah and and that's part of the psychological trick of being able to sort of carry out these these things isn't it
1: exactly yeah but I, mean, I, I learned it the hard way but i mean asking an ira guy ex-ira guy whether he ever thought of his victims the first time i met him and he said why would I? And I was like, Oh, "Okay, take that question back."
0: Right.
1: <laughs> what did you have for tea? <laughs> Let's start there. You know, because that—that's—that's that's the nature of it. You know, so I, I already knew that.
0: And is that an old school IRA response? What that they would all kind of give, and there actually be an, another answer to that question that maybe you'd get further down the road, or, or is it?
1: I know? think it depends. They have to do the emotional work, right? I mean, there's been a whole lot of suicides um uh, with ex prisoners and you know, do they get to that point? I don't know. Uh, it's it's hard the recovery back from being a combatant in a, in a in a conflict or terrorist, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It's not an easy way back. So I, I don't know, I think for me the important part of the next half of the conversation was he was he's now seeing my dad as a human being. Right, and he wants to know the kind of man he'd killed. I see. Yeah, and he wants to know how it, how it impacted me. So it's a very different kind of conversation.
0: And from there, ultimately, you end up. Now I use the word friends. Would you? What would you class yourselves as? You spent you spent a lot of time together, mm. collaborating. I've seen some some footage of you doing talks and there are moments where he still will say on stage, I'm sorry, Joe, I know you hate it when I say this or I know that when I say this you find it upsetting but I'm Mm. going to say it anyway. So there does seem to be, that seems to be a very interesting relationship where friends, I guess, is the word you'd use for lack of a better term but I'm sure it's probably somewhere, it's probably somewhere that hasn't been, explored all that much i guess
1: yeah i think we get to the limitations of the english language
0: right that's what i'm getting at yeah exactly that's
1: what i thought so yeah friends is the best we have but i sometimes say it's unusual friendship yeah
0: mm. oh, it's definitely unusual <laughs> yes so someone's
1: what... actually writing about our kind of wants to write about our friendship in a book right which should be interesting yeah, it is, it is a very interesting friendship.
0: So, at what point do you get him going from "I don't think about my victims" and here's my justification for um, essentially killing your father to um, yes, I will go on the road with you and do these talks at the, the you know, uh, the, the a danger because it like you're saying the riots, people know who he is, and it's a controversial move. So how do you get from, from that initial meeting to, mm. to, to, to being colleagues?
1: Mm. I think it all comes from that moment. He says he was disarmed by my empathy. Right. And if I'd gone in there arguing with him, he wouldn't have changed. Right. But he was disarmed. And then he started on his journey. And after that first meeting, he went to a library to try and find a book about what do you feel when you meet the daughter of someone you killed? Because he didn't know what to do with his feelings. Yeah. It was very hard for him.
0: And he couldn't find the book?
1: No, there's no book. <laughs> didn't so, exist.
0: So now he's writing it.
1: He's written his book. Right. It's published. Um, so for him, I now know it, he just wanted to have the second meeting, and so did I. I felt a similar way. We started something, it wasn't finished. And right. the only person who'd understand... Would be him, and he thought me, so it was it was a very unusual time, three very, very intense
0: so it's a, a sort of a weird symbiotic healing, mm. yeah where you then you then needed each other mm. very interesting,
1: yes, we did
0: wow, okay, and so how long did that process take and so you guys felt that you were in a position where you know individually you were kind of good and that maybe you could put some of that aside and find a a, a tether of of mm. of some mutual respect or uh, admiration for each other that you could call a friend in the the failing of the language
1: well the it was a few years before i could use the word friend but so during that year We met a lot of times because we were being filmed for a documentary. And I think that really helped. Because if we hadn't been filmed, we wouldn't have met each other. Mm. Uh, So it sort of gave a kind of framework. And then outside the filming, we also spent a lot of time together listening and talking and all sorts of things. And then just before the documentary went out, we did our first talk at a conference in Ireland but it didn't get into the press because it, it was kind of private. Right. And once we have gone public, then the invitations started coming for us to speak, and we, we were ready.
0: And how many of these talks have you now done?
1: Over 300 probably, but we've lost count.
0: And then COVID's come.
1: 400, I don't know.
0: Right. And so the pandemic put those to a halt, did it? Or did they? did they sort of... Yeah, live out their usefulness, and it was time to do something else.
1: I don't know going forward. Um, he's not a great fan of speaking on Zoom, right? Uh, so it's hard to do talks. But there was one planned to do in Liverpool in September. I think maybe it's been cancelled, but we would have done it, you know, and. There's um, an organisation that's making a little documentary about us, which will be used as, as a kind of teaching aid mm. for people to use around the world in terms of conflict transformation. And he's very happy to be interviewed for that and work with me. Right. So we might. I do a lot of work in tower hamlets and schools, and I might see one of the schools will let us be filmed and give a talk in in to the sixth form. And that could be part of the documentary. But yes, I mean, he, he would still speak with me if we were asked to do something together. I mean, I mainly do things on my own. Right. But if if we were both asked, I'd say yes, and I, I think he would too. Right. So it's not finished.
0: It's not finished. And do you, do you think it will ever be finished? Do you think there will be a day when you can go... We've come so far now individually that we could leave each other alone, and and it be yeah maybe and it be fine. Will you be at his funeral? Yeah. Will you be at yours? No. Interesting. Why is that?
1: Um, I wouldn't be fair for my family.
0: Of course, yeah.
1: But if his family would be happy to have me, I would go. I would have to check. I imagine that they'd be fine. I have obviously have to check. Oh, I have
0: really thought this through. I just put out there as a sort of... A, no, but definitely, like a test, definitely wouldn't it? come to mind. Right. Tell me about your book.
1: Mm-mm, my book. I Need Accountability to finish it.
0: <laughs> right. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, there's always so much to do that the writing doesn't happen.
0: Oh, so you've, you're procrastinating with yeah. it a little bit.
1: And I had a literary agent who then wasn't very nice to me. Right. And in fact, really unkind. So I've now got an ex-literary agent. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <I> <laughs> Which is people, good. There are probably people with more ex-literary agents than there are literary agents. Do you reckon? Probably.
1: Um, I now feel liberated. Right. I've turned it into a gift and a blessing.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm very pleased I don't have one. And um, <laughs> I'm now free to write my book. Right. And then when it's complete, then I'll get someone to... Turn it into good English. Obviously, yeah. you do the grammar and everything,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> and then contact a publisher.
0: Okay. Good stuff. Um, where's where? What's next? Is the book next? Is this your next focus, or what? what, what
1: yeah. What? The book, and I'm developing an online course at the moment. Right. Um, I'm looking at ways that I can charge a bit more than I have been. I mean, a lot of the I have a charity, yeah, Building Bridges for Peace. And we did get some funding to work with young people um, during the last year and a half. So I've done a lot of work in schools, all virtual. And that will carry on. I'll always be working in schools, working with young people. And that's about empowering them to be positive change makers. Right. I've discovered that my story gives me a credibility that young people just immediately feel listened to and heard, which is wonderful without me having to spell it out to them they just get it that I'm there for them. Mm. Um, and so they open up and share. And I've had, remember amazing young Muslim girl saying that it was the first time she'd been listened to by um, a white person who was older than her, who believed in her and thought that she had a lot to say, which is appalling that I was the first person.
0: Mm. But I find those things hard to believe, not saying I don't believe her, but I find that stuff hard to believe. And then I realise how sort of naive you can be. And yeah, yeah, and then and then you realize, well,, no, of course that could happen, but it's like it's like almost like something you don't you don't want to feel that that's the world know. we live in.
1: They experience racism every day, mm. so, yeah, so i love I love working with the young people, and I've been invited to go back to South Korea in November or October for a peace conference, whether or be personally, I don't know. Um, you know, there's, there's def- I definitely still feel hungry to have more impact on the world stage. Right. So if you said, like, what's my next mountain? Like, and that I would, you know, in, in my dreams, <laughs> where it all starts, <laughs> I'd be dreaming about going around the world because, and talking about the importance of not demonizing people right. and the importance of empathy. And to me, empathy turns into an action word. Because if we're going to empathise with people, we're going to want for them or we want for our loved ones. And we're going to want to work that they, they have justice, they feel safe. So I want to have more impact in the world. And I don't yet know how. I think the book will help. But I don't feel finished. You know, people go, surely, Joe, you've done enough. You can go back to being a normal person. <laughs> I'm like, I've never been normal. <laughs> and I feel like I've just started. I've got a big mission. And I've just started. That's how it feels.
0: Do you think the book will be a good legacy? Do you think the book is more of a legacy piece, like something that will continue to teach and reach beyond your time?
1: And well, maybe, and but also a way to open doors for me. Yeah. But maybe also that as well. But yeah,
0: that might be a nice byproduct of of it.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought of that.
0: Um, and do you, do, you, do you ever ask yourself if do you think your dad would be proud of you for what you've done? Because you're kind of sort of doing a similar thing of what he was doing, just different. You know, there's some parallels with with your lives, isn't there? Because what you're a lot of what you're doing is is very political in in, in many ways. Um. So do you think you'd be pleased with your chosen path?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, Before he died, we had an amazing conversation where he'd been to Burundi and Rwanda with the government and he'd had some experiences there which took him so far out of his comfort zone. And he really, he learned a lot by being there Mm. and his whole world expanded and his understanding. He almost feels like he had a kind of slightly mystical experience there. And so when he came back, he said to me, Joe, I've always found it hard to describe what you do to my friends. And looking back on it, yeah, I completely understand that. <laughs> you know, it was hard. And it was important. He was, he was so proud of all his six children. You know, he loved us all. Such a loving man. Anyway, and he said, but now, but now I understand you, he said. I know what to say. And I was like, oh, okay. So because of what I experienced in Rwanda, which is interesting, it's it's Rwanda... I, I know that you're, you're driven for a need to create peace in a way that's bigger than you, and that's your mission. And I was like, "Well, yeah, you you got me," and it was such a blessing.
0: Yeah, that's amazing because that now has so much weight to it, doesn't mm. it? That was like, yeah, he gave you his blessing. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing yeah that might be the best place to stop that might be the best place to end that because that doesn't get any better than that does it
1: no i feel very moved by myself saying that remembering that but yeah it was a real blessing you're right
0: yeah amazing joe um thank you for your time i know that all of this stuff comes at an emotional cost to you to go back through it all and be so open about it so thank you for sharing that with us and um
1: Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate your, uh, your very wise and intuitive and perceptive and taking me to places that, you know, I haven't been before in a podcast. So I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Big thank you to my guest this week, Joe Berry. As I said, it was a long time coming. I'm so glad that we got to sit down and have that conversation with her that wraps up season two of the giant pod we are already looking with hungry eyes at season three and planning that one for you big thank you to everyone that's coming in who's brand new to the podcast welcome there's a whole back catalog for you to dig into while we get season three ready for you we're going to leave links in the show notes descriptions for all things building bridges for peace and all things uh joe berry If you want to follow us on Instagram and Twitter is at thegiantpod, you can get me on Instagram at andy__s1s. Please like, share, comment, subscribe. If you've got a friend who you think would really benefit from hearing this conversation, please pass it on to them. Word of mouth is a really, really powerful way of helping this podcast grow. We love it. We love what we're doing here and we really want to share it with as many people as we can. This podcast was produced by the podcast demigod, Harry Williams. We will see you in Season 3 of The Giant Pod very soon. Hold tight. Take care. We'll see you soon. Thanks.